Welcome to episode 260 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. Thanks for listening. If you want to support Stageworthy, consider dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Your support helps me continue to bring you great conversations in Canadian theatre. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 260 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is actor, designer, filmmaker, and photographer Howie, also known as Howard J. Davis. Here's our conversation. Howie, thank you so much for doing this. Are are you are you in Toronto right now? No, I actually live in Niagara on the Lake. So, how long have you been uh, living in Niagara on the Lake? So, I came out here in 2015, which was actually my first season at the Shaw Festival. I went there mm. as an actor and um did not think I was a small town person. <laughs> town girl and um it turns out that especially in the pandemic it's it it's i've come to really like it mm. and i think part of that is just the pressure of not being in a city where there's more of a chance to um you know come into contact with this lovely covid that we're all dealing with sure Sure. And have you been have you been living in Niagara on the Lake uh, since your first uh, Shaw Festival? Yeah, yeah. So I I went there for a first season and it was under Jackie Maxwell's tenure which was actually her last season. Mm. And then mm-hmm. Tim Carroll came in and um you know naturally with a new artistic director they they bring people that they want. I mm-hmm. did not audition for him but was invited back as a designer. So I've Mm. been there as a designer under his artistic direction. And um, so I went back that season in uh, 2018, I went back. Hmm. Okay. So that, that brings up the question, which came first uh, acting or designing? Well, I've always been very artistically inclined to Mm -hmm. design work, particularly, you know, in high school, I drew, I was in, Art AP, I thought for a while I might go to Emily mm. Carr University mm. in Vancouver. Mm. But mm. Um, obviously, like the performing formatively, I, you know, I was in musical theater. I sang, I danced, I acted and um, wasn't sure I wanted to go into training, actually. But um, when I, I remember auditioning at Sheridan, um, it was a, the U- University of Toronto Sheridan program. And mm. they had said, oh, you don't need to go to school. And I went, I think because people said you don't need to go, I wanted to go just to sort of <laughs> be contrary in a way. And being 17 as well, it was, you know, it was something I thought I should do that actors went to study classical theater. Of course. So... Um, what was, what, what was it that made you first catch the theater bug? 
oh my goodness, it's funny, this year I'm turning 30, and it will have been nearly 25 years that I've been performing. Mm. And it's hard to say what that was. I think part of it was um, that old adage of doing it to escape my own um, myself in many ways. And I've found in that escape, it's, it's circular. In escaping yourself, you find yourself. It's, <laughs> you know, Ibsen says in Pure Gint uh, with the button maker, um, you have to go through rather than around. And by going through, there's so many analogies that I could mm. pull from, but that one especially resonates with me because you, to truly find yourself, you, you know, you're, you're constantly almost in a circle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember what it was that where you first got into theater or did you, like, what called you to it? Did you, was it accidental or did you, was it a desire that you had? I think it was an innate desire in me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I, I was loud <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> I, I, I liked being the center of attention and, um, you know, and we moved around a lot because I was, mm. you know, born in the UK, um, mm. but was back and forth between Canada and the UK. And um, it was in Kelowna, BC, where I was raised that that's where I really started performing. And then when we moved back to England, that just kept happening. And then one of my first, I would say it was sort of semi-professional. I did the show Oliver at the Bath Theatre Royal in England. Mm. And they usually, you know, they would bring kids um, from t- shows would tour from London and come to Bath and the kids mm-hmm. would usually be locals. So I was one of them. Right. Right. And um, I, imagine, I imagine with shows like that, like the, the Oliver was not a local, but all of the urchins and pickpockets were. Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> Cause yeah, I, I, I came quite i i didn't actually have to audition for it i was um my i because we just moved back to england and then someone knew my mom and knew that i was a performer so they just sort of fit me in there <laughs> and um and we alternated with other kids so mm. that was really that theater oh my god i'd love to um i'd love to go back Mm. And, and work there in any capacity because mm. you know those those theaters are haunted and they they carry such history with them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point did you? Because uh, you were talking about you know you you didn't know if you were going to go to to school for theater that until you were told that you sh- that you didn't have to. Um, but at what point did theater like you? When did you make that choice, theater over design? Well, it was it was always going to be performing for me, and design didn't really I that design didn't really come up for me until when Shaw didn't happen in twenty sixteen season, and mm. I at the time was devastated. I can imagine. <laughs> and then I sort of realized that was a bit of a blessing in disguise because it really made me have to lean on 
my other skills. And and I think that sort of self-preservation has been keeping me going because it's branched me off into doing a lot of different things, but it's all um, in a way been, been, been usually as actors, you are the art and mm. in designing and filmmaking and photography, it's it's liberating in a different way because I am not the art and it can speak for itself. So, um, yeah, it's not like I had to. Do, I've been choosing one over the other. It's just now being open to what opportunities present themselves, and this has in really exciting ways. Hmm. I find it, you know, it's really interesting because when, you know, when I was in theater school way back in times long gone, um, we, they, they often told us that, you know, if don't let anybody know you can do something other than act, (laughs) don't, you know, just, just, just be an actor. If, if you have a passion for something else, do that instead, but like, just be an actor. If you could do something else, don't tell anybody. And I think a lot of us at that time were like, oh, okay, that's great advice because otherwise, I don't know what we were thinking because otherwise maybe we could have like more varied careers. I don't know. But I've, I, in, in recent, in the last few, maybe five years or so, I know there's lots more people who are like, they describe themselves as, as like having a hyphen. I'm an actor designer. Right. I am an actor director, all of these other things. And I think that, that that's sort of more healthy. Like we, we are all multifaceted and to say mm-hmm. that we're just, I'm just an actor. I just go to auditions. I just do this. That's so limiting uh, to both the career and the creative soul. I I would agree with you in some ways, uh, but I think it's generational too. You know, my, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. my husband who is um, Peter Hinton, I love him very, very much. Um, mm-hmm. He started performing you know, he he also went to Ryerson, and yes. um, when upon leaving, he's been, you know, directing since the mid '80s, and um, and I think back then there was this um, more people did singular professions that, and mm. as you're saying, this sort of hyphenated career now it's a it's a hybrid, and I'm a hybrid. You know, I'm. I'm mm-hmm. a, <laughs> I'm black, I'm white, I'm, <laughs> I'm a designer, I'm a filmmaker, I'm an actor. And, and um, it's nice to hear you say that that's a healthy thing, because I do. I don't think there's one way. No one's path is the same at all. And no. I definitely got over that thing. <laughs> of, yeah. Obviously, you know, it's hard to not compare yourself to other people. But I think because I'm 30 this year, I feel a weight mm. of that r- responsibility. It's not mm. even a responsibility. It's just I feel a weight of I actually don't need to compare myself at all to anyone because I am me and nobody else. That's why it's tattooed on my foot. <laughs> mm. And that is that is super healthy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it it can take a long time to get that way in in the in the acting profession, even though they tell us, you know, you can't compare yourself to other people. We always do. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want need to geek out for a second because um, I was a big fan of, of your husband's. Um, I was, uh, I listened to uh, the interviews when he was oh, uh, the right. artistic director at uh, the NAC. So 
um, I always enjoyed uh, the interviews and found them really uh, insightful. So just to throw that out uh, there and geek out just a little bit. I'll have to um, let know that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, 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 when you chose, like, you did you chose the one theater school? Did you look at other ones, or did was it just the Sheridan program that you were looking at? I looked at a few actually. There was, um, oh my goodness, oh my god, you're making me think. Sorry, I, I, I you know, I wanted to go big and mm. audition for RADA in the UK, um, Lambda, UCLA, mm. um, and then Sher- there was Sheridan Ryerson. Yeah, I, there was a lot, and I remember um, I was, you know, very, very lucky that my parents were so supportive. They've always been supportive. Mm. Um, they let my sister and I. We went to New York and were able to audition for a lot of schools there. And um, oh my god, like even getting into, we got into Lambda and. <laughs> ADA or whatever. I forget all of the acronyms. Sure. Yeah. But it was the fees and we were like, whoa, like two, 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 essentially me and my sister, because I went to theater school with her. um, And my, we just couldn't afford it. You know, like my, my parents are from they're middle to working class, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it was, uh, I just didn't want to put that on them. And Ryerson actually felt really perfect because mm. even in my interview, I remember them saying, you know, we don't do musicals here. And I was like, no, that's good. Cause I want to, you know, I want to try different methods and, um, and it, on reflection, it was the best experience because it was like a buffet of different styles and techniques. Mm-hmm. But you, I mean, uh, you didn't choose Ryerson. Oh, I did. No, I did. And so what was it that ultimately when you chose the, the, the U of T Sheridan program, what was it that, um, that drew, that made you choose that one over, over the other ones? So I w- was at Sheridan and they, um, they, took me on the spot and said, oh, we, we want to keep you away from Ryerson. I don't know why they said that. <laughs> and I was like, why would you say that? And, um, and then I went to Ryerson and was like, oh, are they afraid that I choose them over them? And um, I, lo- I just loved the vibe of the theater school at Ryerson. So the, mm. I, went, I went there instead. And um, oh. so it was, you know. It was, I I never know why they said that to me, but. It's such a strange thing to say. Yeah, it was. People say there were strange, a lot of strange things said at theater school. (laughs) You know, that is, that is 100% true. It doesn't Mm. matter the theater school. There are a lot of strange things that get said at theater schools. Um, What, I mean, how was your time at theater school? Um, I know uh, I've talked to people who had great times and a lot more people who've had uh, some trying times at theater school. What was it, what was it like for you? Um, it was a long process because I went, um, I went when I was 17 and after that first year they said, we love you, but go away. You're way too young. Um, and so I took their advice and I I traveled Mm. for a year. I went to Australia and worked, um, went back, joined a different class. I was with my sister, 
you know, a lot of, we, we both did the program together. So that was a beautiful thing. Um, mm. But it was, it had its ups and downs, you know, like in my third year, I lost my best friend. He passed away mm. um, in class. Mm. And, um, mm. and it, it really, um, it really devastated our group. Yeah. And it, and through fourth year, it wasn't quite, um, I remember that was when we had guest artists that would come in and, and they, all of them in those final interviews noted, what's, what's up with your class? And, you know, <laughs> cause it did, it did affect us. And, um, but luckily, you know, those experiences of working with the professionals in fourth year, mm-hmm. I had, I was very lucky. I had extremely fun parts to play and it was with Dean Gilmore of, mm. you know, Smith Gilmore, mm-hmm. um, and Stuart Arnott. And they were, they were so wonderful to work with. Mm. So it, you know, to, if, to wrap it up in, <laughs> It, it was it was what it was it was up it was down it was left it was right <laughs> yeah yeah it's complex I, I i think that 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 theater school is always complex especially because most most of us tend to go relatively young yeah yeah you know i started theater school when i was 19 as 18 18 i started when i was 18 as did you know most of my classmates and the the head of acting at the time would look at us and go, I wish you were all older. And none of us were like, <laughs> okay, I'll quit and I'll come back. We we're like, fuck you old man. But, um, you know, it was, it was, um, relative, you know, we were all like so young and trying to get in touch with, with, with stuff that we were in some ways not ready to deal with. And so I've, I've sometimes thought, you know, if I could go back to theater school now with, with what I know now, but then I don't think I would have the patience for some of the bullshit that you sometimes find at theater schools. So, <laughs> yeah, it's um, in some ways because of what I've been doing more so lately. Um, and I remember in fourth year actually doing film class with David Langer, um, amazing, amazing man at Ryerson, and um, and he said, "Why aren't you in the film program?" And I sort of went, "Well." I'm in fourth year of the acting theater program. And so in many, I feel like, you know, I wouldn't, I don't regret anything really, but mm. it would have been interesting to do the film program or even mm. to study business because, you know, law and, <laughs> and grant writing, like that is, it's, I, I've been, I, I've been doing a lot more of that to c- cultivate mm. and create my own work as a, producer and a filmmaker and a a creator now yeah i think that that's that's an area of of the of the arts that 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 doesn't get a lot of attention like when we were at theater school who who told us yes you're also going to have to be a producer right and you're you know you probably will have to market yourself you probably have to do a show and do your own marketing or you know all of these things that that maybe you're going to need to do oh you probably have to write some grants we should probably talk about that um all these things that become important that, that aren't really dealt with at the time. Right. Um, what, what was your path to the Shaw festival? Did you like how quickly when you got out of theater school, did you find yourself at Shaw? Well, I like, I, as I said, my, my theater school training was 
longer because I got invited back to do um, a semester of the dance program, which was after certain people after doing the acting program can be invited to do the dance program too. And I was one of them. Um, so in doing that, I realized, you know, to do, to really be a triple threat, I, mm -hmm. I wanted to really hone that skill because I was not tuning my own horn very good. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so to do that semester with those teachers there was amazing. But then halfway through, I got Shaw. And so mm. it was, you know, stay and finish or um, do that. So I, I decided to take the Shaw because I'd, fi I'd finished all my electives. I had my right. degree. So I, um, yeah, I got to Shaw mm. and um, that dance call was very hard. And mm. thank God I, you know, did of a semester and a half of, it was basically like six days a week of dancing hmm. and um and that the rigor of that is is so different from acting right because it's in an acting scene it's subjective as to what is how people are playing intentions with one another how you're affecting change in a partner it is really subjective as to who is successful at that there's no mm -hmm. question about whether you can do a triple pirouette or not no, it that's just, very true. You you can do it or you can't. And so that learning that skill was really um just the rigor of it was really helpful. Um now when everything shut down, what were you working on? Oh, you <laughs> it's funny actually. I got back to Canada I shouldn't laugh, but it's miraculous how it all happened. Um, mm. We we went on a uh, on our honeymoon, Peter and I. Um, and we were in the UK and mm. came via Iceland, and we got back March the thirteenth. And so it was crazy, you know, coming back. And we P Peter hadn't really planned on working at this time. He was taking mm. you know a year off. I was going to Stratford. It would have been my first season oh. there. Mm. But mm. It, it, as it so happens, I I had planned with um, the various projects I'd been doing to be in production on my first feature film while I was designing at Stratford. Right. And the fact that that show did not happen, which, you know... I'm really upset about. I really did want to work with Elisa Palmer. I really respect mm. her. And Joanna Yu is a dear, dear friend of mine. But just thinking, whoa, how would I have gotten my feature film done while doing Stratford? And so, mm. you know, when the lockdown happened, I basically had come back from England with footage that I had shot there. Um, and I went into production on my feature film and um so luckily i i had something to work on which i know hmm. is rare and um so i do i'm i'm really really grateful for that but it's also unfortunate that you know hopefully hamlet 911 happens hmm. in down the in the future but 
um, had that happened, I don't know how mixed up would have <sighs> come. It would have come, but it would have it would have been a very different process, I think. Yeah, I can imagine it would be hard to do design at 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 a festival and put together and, and create a feature film. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's what not we, uncommon, we, you know, hmm. in um because of the nature of design hmm. and the my mentors that I've observed like how Bonnie Beecher as a lighting designer does so many shows and juggles that mm. I, I have learned from observing her and being in processes with other designers, not just Bonnie at many of them, how to balance the number of projects. And at most, like right now I have four on the go. And that for me is, it's like an oven top. Mm. I can do four and manage that. But any more than that, you know, one's on a simmer, one's on a boil. <laughs> it's like, it's just balancing like a, a kitchen. Well, it's good that you, that you know that so many people don't know what, how many projects they can juggle. Um, uh, how, how did you learn what your max number of juggling projects was? Trial and error. <laughs> <laughs> really, truly and honestly. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it, it and it's it, it's so so exciting. Like some of the stuff that's coming. Like I said, through had had I been asked back to Shaw, I don't know if I'd be on this path. And um, mm -hmm. so everything you just it it's a really healthy reminder that everything literally happens for a reason. That's why cliches are, you know, they're true because. They, um, there's a, obviously a people have a negative connotation with cliches, but I think mm. um, they're true. Like love conquers all. It's true. Mm. Why don't we talk about mixed up? What can you What can you tell me about about mixed up? Oh my goodness, mixed up is uh, a very very um, personal story. It's sort of part testimonial, part confessional and um really for me it's what are the lines between the facts of who i am and the fiction of what i can become and mm -hmm. um in many ways it's sort of a reclaimed book of genesis it's a manifesto um a mixed up manifesto i call it mm -hmm. that collides the wildly diverse elements of being queer mixed and different in a world that's socialized around the construction of race and gender and orientation and um in many ways it's a love letter to my dad who is also mm. mixed um and chronicles the experience of his in relationship to mine and you know uh sorry i'm getting a bit emotional i have to uh, sure um yeah. it it's it's really a demand that we celebrate the existence of being other and different and on this journey of finding inner cohesion, you mm. know, and um, so it, it's very, very personal. And I, I wanted to invite people that I really trust into that process. Mm. Um, and so it, it, it follows my journey through a lot of very visual images and 
spoken word, singing, um, docu style. I wouldn't say it's a very conventional documentary. It's it's an art film. And um, and then there are people like Tantu Cardinal and Tom Allison and Jani Lozon and Jeremiah Sparks, you know, sings on the soundtrack. So it's, it's a lot of my very close friends that generously shared their experiences as well. And mm. so it's uh I'm really excited for people to see that. And 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 well when 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 can people see that? Oh, well, it's funny because we're recording this, you know, now and obviously yes. it's going to come out later. Um we have a a premiere date in November. I can't Ooh. say quite yet. Okay, um, okay. But it's going to be on broadcast TV in Canada and That's amazing. the UK, so um yeah, that that's hopefully when this comes out, um, if you go to mixedup.ca, there should be all the information on the website and social media. So check it out. <laughs> I will I will one hundred percent include that 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 URL in the show notes. Um what was in terms of like wanting to make a, a documentary uh feature uh, uh about the themes of uh, of being a mixed person, being queer, being like all of the all of the things that that make up you and 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 the people you know the love letter to your father and all of that. What was the genesis of of wanting to create this documentary? Well, th- a lot. You know, I couldn't really pinpoint it to one thing, but I do remember coming back from an audition, um, and I was so gutted because in that audition, I you know being English, yeah, my f- accent's a bit funny and all over the place. But I remember at that audition, the casting director saying, can you be more English? And I just went, oh my God, I'm not English enough, Mm. not North American enough, not black enough, not white Mm. enough, not straight enough, not gay enough. And then in the back of my head, I remember saying, but I am enough. Mm. If I make sense in the real world, why the fuck, pardon my language, I'm sorry if you have to beep that out, but why- No, no it's podcast. We get to swear all we want. Like, so, why yeah. can't I make sense on camera to an mm. audience? And um, and so that was, I guess, one of the genesis behind it of going, mm. I am enough. But in order to find that clarity- one must go through the ugly trenches of realizing that. And so a lot of it was, it's, it's like a monologue of, mm. so, of all of those experiences of, you know, and it's sad that it's happened, but I have been told all of those things um, being, you know, a, 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 a paler black man mm. that I'm not black enough. Mm. And and especially in this culture, um, it's everything that's happened with Brianna Taylor and mm. um, George Floyd. Mm-hmm. It's being the metaphoric and physical battleground of of this white on black experience. Mm. It's interesting. I never had. Um, there was never an internal um, hierarchy in my experience. 
ever my blackness and my whiteness were and have always been the same. But when you see the treatment of people because of the color of their skin, it mm-hmm. makes that it makes it's so complicated. I, I I could talk about it for longer than probably we have <laughs> to talk tonight. But in, in witnessing that, my affinity to my whiteness, I'll be honest, has lessened. I mm. and because my skin can't speak for me, I have to in other ways. And um and so I I would say in the last five to ten years, like I'm black, mm. even though people look at me and question that. Um, that's another part of, you know, mixed up is explaining my heritage is like coming out of the closet every time because I come out and out and out over and over and over again. And um and that's difficult, but it's also fucking amazing. It's it's an interesting uh because the you know, everybody wants to put everybody else in a box and and my my sister was was also mixed and she the one of the questions that people always asked was what are you mm-hmm. you know they needed to put her in some kind of box are you are you black are you white are you like they needed something and it was always very strange to me that she couldn't just be my sister she couldn't just be anna she there was some racial definition or color definition or something else that people needed to put on her. Um, and I think that that's, um, uh, I, you know, how, how does, how does personally I've never, like, I think it's the, one of the most irrelevant things, her, the, what are you was always the least interesting mm-hmm. thing about her. Well, it's just part of our culture and mm. our conditioning that we will. I was talking to my um, auntie Carrie, who mm. um, is in the film too, because it's you know my friends and my biological family, and mm-hmm. she had said that um, she's, she lives in the UK, and so mm. that whole dynamic is a very different one as well, and she mm. has reminded many people that she works with of why we must classify a person by their race in sort of sharing of stories. And I think Mm. she'd had a a conversation with someone that was telling her about an experience they had. And they said, Oh, that black guy. And she went, Mm -hmm. why, why are you telling me, why are you sort of footnoting uh, an experience with someone's race? Or mm-hmm. with someone's color, it, it's and so it, it's. I I I think it sort of speaks to what you're saying. Of that is not always the first thing that we should be um, categorizing people by. But it's also, mm-hmm. you know, it's important that we acknowledge difference too in everyone because that's what makes us stand out and feel like we're important. Because we all are. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think that that um, you know it's it's interesting because it's you know I think it's this is the second time this week that I've heard somebody call attention to the 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 color descri- descriptor. I was talking to that black woman. I was talking to that right. that black man. Um, 
That's why we should we should just do a reversal of it and go. Yeah, I was talking to this white woman. No, absolutely, (laughs) we should totally do that because like we need to call attention to the fact that there that that there's a a societal white default which mm-hmm. is so toxic to everything. Like we have to say, oh, I was, you know, I was at the, I was talking to that Chinese guy. I was talking to that black man. Right. And, and if we don't put those on there, the assumption is that I was talking to a, a white person, but it's, it's one of the most ridiculous things that we do. I get very frustrated about all of that, but you know, not as frustrated as, as I don't know. I lose my words. Um, That's okay. It's yeah. hard to do. It's hard to talk about this kind of stuff because it's nuanced, right? Like it's not. Mm-hmm. We we want it to be binary, and it's not. There's a huge. I used to say that all the grays in between, but all the colors in between. It's mm-hmm. you know we are going to in, in order to address these um, subjects, the subject of racialization. Mm-hmm. We are going to misstep. Mm-hmm. And we have to be willing to uh, to allow for that to happen in the betterment for for the betterment of everyone. That you know, sometimes people are going to say things, and um, and they have to obviously take action for what they say, but also be allowed to to make mistakes. Well, talking about race is something that has been dissuaded. Especially for white people, white people don't talk about race um, unless they're forced into a situation where they have to, and then um, it, it becomes that's it becomes awkward because they haven't been they don't know how to talk about race in a way that 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 is is intelligent, that's nuanced, and so it's a thing that 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 we we mess up on because we get awkward and we get you know, but we also have to learn like you say to be to realize that it's okay that we get awkward and only by having the awkward conversation can we actually become good at it mm. well it, it's the 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 other part of that the flip side of that coin is white people don't really ever acknowledge white privilege no they or don't what whiteness <laughs> like and um and I guess, you know, being both, I, uh, I'm i not saying I'm better than anyone by any means, but it's something I've had to contend with uh, for, a very, mm. for a very long time. And, um, mm. But it, it's also been a, a very interesting process for me being born in the UK mm. and um, this sort of decolonization of myself because, because I passed there. And in some ways, I didn't really think about it when I was younger because as children you you don't unless there are sort of garish blatant experiences but mm-hmm. i i really you know i did experience that in observing how my dad was treated um very much mm. and and that's mm. part of the reason you know why we left is he um he was um racially discriminated against and um sued uh, a council actually a city council mm. Um, and he won the case and, um, we were able to sort of be free of that. And, and that's partly why we came back to Canada is my mm. dad could finally drop his shoulders in relief that, mm-hmm. you know, he, uh, that someone had listened finally. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, the idea, like the whole privilege thing is one of those, like, um, you know, I, you know, I have my sister who was, who was mixed, my brother who's black and, and me just seeing as we were growing up, the different ways that we moved through the world mm -hmm. made it so apparent to me that, that my experience is different from theirs. And this is why. Mm. And it's it's the color of my skin that means that I walk into a store and nobody gives a shit. And my brother walks into the store and somebody's on him, following him, just as like a single example. And there are many others. I didn't know that but, about you. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, not sorry. It's not amazing. No, but, it's un no, but unfortunate. But it's it's, it's it's so personal to everyone. Everyone has such a connection to being mixed. I really do mm. think it's you know. Obviously, we we hear um, statistics that by 2050, everyone will be. But it's mm. it's also interesting that it's so it's it's not discussed that much. Which was another reason why I I wanted to talk about it and doing it in a short film didn't could I couldn't get all my ideas out. Mm. So it, that's why you know I went. This has to be feature length, and then absolutely. You know, Absolutely. The, the network got involved and mm. and so I was able to sort of justify, oh, in in the creation of it, um that it, it had to be a certain length and there were so many commercial breaks and yada yada mm. yada, all those mm. things of navigating with a with a, a network that mm. being in it, directing it, editing it, producing it, like it's it's a big job. It's a big job. But did the network getting did they get they got involved early enough that you were able to to did that allow you to construct it in such a way that it fits with the the network's requirements? It did. And you know, I was very fortunate that my co-producer had a really Jack Fox, my co-producer. He's mm. a trans filmmaker from Vancouver. Mm. Um brilliant, brilliant artist. Um and he had a relationship with them. And so, you know, that sort of bridged, um, as you were saying, these early, I was able to to create with them in mind. Hmm. That's certainly helpful, rather than like trying to squeeze in commercials later. Right. Which is so funny that, oh, we need, we need to break up. Like if you, the fact that we can sit through theater for an hour and a half a 90 minute show. And I go, mm. why can't you do that with film? <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it's like, it's to me, there's this, this, this thing. Cause you know, I haven't watched a show on broadcast television in several years. And I used to do a bit of traveling for work and I find myself in a hotel and in the evening turn on the TV and something would start and then the commercial would come on and be like, why are these things taking so long? Right. You know, I had yeah, no yeah. more patience for the commercials after a while. Um, but again, there's that, there's that balance because the commercials are what allow us to not pay for the show in, in that strange way right. that, that the broadcast television is, you know, mm -hmm. um, and what was, I mean, when you were assembling this and this is a great project to have to, to, to get through in 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 these the covid times um how long did it take to give it shape or did you did you have have a shape 
of it before you started editing or did you um, discover that in the process? It from from production to delivery, it took four months working full time. So from mm. um, March, I got back March thirteenth, <laughs> and I started on it the the week after was the production schedule, I think. And um, so yeah, it took four months. I had it written. Um, I I'd started writing. Sorry. Um, the year before to a year mm. and a half before then. But um, yeah, I would say that the bulk of production was that four month period and mm. nothing really changed because my co-producer was in Vancouver and I was in Ontario. So mm -hmm. the restrictions on COVID, it was nothing was really that different. And, um, mm. and the, the only difference was I wasn't able to, film my subjects that are in the film they they actually sent me um footage of themselves that was right. then cut into the final film mm. so mm. um yeah all in all it's it's gonna be a really i i'm i'm very excited for that to be shared with the world because it's i don't want to say it's timely but it, it is in in some ways as, as well because of what we're going through together as. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I think, like, no, to me, it's, it's, uh, you know, I think timely is an excellent word for it. It's an excellent way to describe what I'm, what the way that you're talking about it. And I think also, you know, talking about, you know, talking about all the different facets and, and race being one of them, I think it's an important conversation to be having and to get into those facets and those uncomfortable places. So I think uh, like I'm looking forward to seeing it. So uh, oh, I'll be you. following for when, for when that comes up. Um, as we start to wind down, um, one of the questions that I've been asking everybody as, as in, in these, since the lockdown started, since the quarantine started whatever we want to call it um, is what has been giving you joy? Oh, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. Who? <laughs> well, my husband, for one thing. Mm -hmm. Even though I think I get on his nerves sometimes. Because <laughs> <laughs> we haven't left each other. Um, food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and just knowing that we will... We will do what we love again mm -hmm. you know um yeah the, i'm not of that school that will say oh 2020 we'll just you know we'll pretend like it didn't happen and go back to the way we used to do things no way i don't want to do things the way they used to be done i i want you know what we've gone through to inform the work mm -hmm. so we can move forward conscientiously Absolutely. I think that, you know, not only the, like, there've been some really important conversations that have been having about, that have been happening about in theater, about, about race, about, you know, what's happening in theater schools. There've been so many important conversations about the way that work happens, all of that stuff. Um, that's one thing that we can't just ignore when it's all over, because um, I think that, you know, the conversations have happened and then it's up to everybody else to watch the theater's who've said, this is what we're going to do to make sure that they do it. Mm -hmm. um, 
And also, I think that as we've been playing with video in theater, um, and some theaters have been installing cameras and things like that, I think that's something that could also remain. Like, absolutely. Why, yeah. You know, yes, we want to be in the room, but what about for people that can't be? Right. You know, what, why don't we start broadcasting? and sell a digital ticket where people can can watch from home. Hmm. I think people will, having been in the room, I think people will want to be in the room. But for some people who can't come that far or or or, or for whatever reason can't can't make the journey, hmm. um, I think it's a great way to to share what we do. Yeah, there's something really interesting about that idea of forms within forms that mm-hmm. To see, and it's something that I'm very interested in doing, especially moving into being a creator of my own work with mm-hmm. projections. That to have something, if it's videoed theater that has projections in it, mm-hmm. like it, this idea of that someone told me about it the other day. Um, there's a definition for it of having, you know the universal pattern in something that it can repeat over and over and over again. I think that's Mm -hmm. really, I think it's really cool to see Mm -hmm. that fusion of, of artistic forms because we're going to need it to get through this together. And, and those immersive sort of augmented ways of working are also going to be, obviously we don't want them to replace people Mm. and, the live experience, but why couldn't they complement one another? Absolutely. Absolutely. Howie, thank you so much for doing this. It's been wonderful. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. This has been a Homebody Productions production.